Welcome to Going Deeper. My name is Marcy Sklove, and today my guest is Loretta Ross. I heard Loretta speak at the Roe v. Wade anniversary event that was put on by Tapestry Health last winter, and I was so moved and excited about Loretta's way of thinking that I wanted to invite her on the show. Loretta is a research associate at the Five College Women's Studies Research Center. And this will be a two-part interview. So first, let me welcome you. Well, thanks for having me on your show. Yeah. It's exciting to be here. <laughs> That's great. I, um, I wanted to start with this quote that I loved uh, when I was looking you up on all the different websites and everything. I always knew that I could carve out my own path and do what I wanted to do. I've always known that I was not defined by my external circumstances. That is the most beautiful statement. And I wondered if you would share some of your story of, of what happened to you. Well, I always had to know that the things that happened to me weren't me. Uh, when I was 11 years old, for example, I was at an outing with my Girl Scout troop and got kidnapped from this outing and raped and had to go home bloody and white, you know, jeans and really reconcile how, what had happened to me because I didn't know anything about sex or sexuality or violence in the community. My mom and dad pretty much sheltered us, protected mm -hmm. us, poor as we were. We had a great loving family. But I also didn't have the words to tell my mom mm. what had happened to me because I was afraid I would get punished mm. for yeah. what had happened to me. Mm. Uh, and so I kept that as a deep, deep secret for a number of years. And then three years later, I was incested by a cousin who was supposed to be babysitting me. He was 27, I was 14, and he thought it would be a better idea to have sex with me. <laughs> and so I got pregnant. Mm. It was in the context of telling my mother about the pregnancy and the incest that I told her about the rape. And so even at that age, I had to learn that these things, bad things that happened to me yeah. weren't me, yeah. that I still had a future, that I still had yeah. possibilities that were beyond these violences, particularly back in the 60s when all yeah. of this happened. I didn't have any control over if and when I had sex mm. through the incest. Right. I didn't have any control once I got pregnant whether or not I would have the baby mm -hmm. uh, because abortion was illegal back mm -hmm. then. My only choice was to decide whether or not to keep the child once I had yeah. the baby. And so I learned to be outraged yeah. at my lack of choices. Wow. And I could not spell the word feminist. I didn't know anything about the women's movement or anything at the time. As I said, I came from a very conservative religious family, yeah. so yeah. it wasn't that I was brought up to be an activist or anything. Mm -hmm. But I was lucky enough when I got to college and was in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. to have run into a woman who worked at the D.C. Rape Crisis Center. And the D.C. Rape Crisis Center was one of the first in the country. It was founded in 1972. Yeah. 
And Nikenji Ture, whose name was a woman who invited me to come to the center, she and I had met through doing housing organizing. Wow. Because we were trying to fight the gentrification of Washington, D.C., which was happening in Adams Morgan and Capitol Hill and all of that. So we were at this meeting at St. Philip's Church, and Nikenji invited me to come to the Rape Crisis Center. And I'm not quite sure why Nikenji singled me out. Yeah. Because I remember my first response to her is that, I don't want to go work with those white women. Come on, it's like Black Nationalist days, you right, know. Right. I just finished reading the autobiography of Malcolm, Malcolm X, X and, yeah. and Tony Cape Bambaro's The Black Woman. And so I wasn't, go work at the Rape Crisis Center. Yeah. And the kid, she literally dropped her eyes and said, Sister, would I lead you wrong? <laughs> and what I knew about Nikenji at the time was that she was a member of the Black Panther Party. Uh -huh. And I felt the Black Panthers were like so hardcore right. that here I am, a movement dilettante. Right, wow. <laughs> you know, trying to, right. trying to like, yeah, I'll come to the Rape Crisis Center. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was kind of like intimidated into coming yeah. because I hadn't told anyone about my rapes except my yeah. mom at, by that, at that time. And so it was through my work at the Rape Crisis Center that I mm. found my voice. Oh. I know that my work with them helped save my life because I was deeply suicidal after wow. all of these things that had happened to me. Sure. And because I made the decision to keep my son after mm -hmm. he was born because mm -hmm. I wasn't able to give him up for adoption, I ended up co-parenting with my rapist. And so I had to learn not to be defined by what had happened to me, yeah. but to craft a meaning for my life beyond those things. Yeah. And so. I don't remember making that statement, but I certainly remember you believing believe it. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like something that comes from deep within you. Um, so you started talking about Black Panthers and the different movement, the Black National Movement. So one of the buttons that I saw on the Smith Archives uh, website of, of your work was the Black Feminism button. Oh, now, back in the day when I was in the 70s, the feminist movement, in my mind, later I understood, was a white middle class feminist movement, pretty much. That's what we were all talking about, was rights, but not understanding all the different parts of women of color, of, of, rate, of uh, class, all those kinds of things. So I'm... I wanted you to talk a little bit about the black feminist movement and how in the 70s and, and further, just I'm very interested, like was that a parallel thing or were you, were you also working with the white feminist movement at that time? How did well, it work? Well, certainly starting with the work at the D.C. Rape Crisis Center, I was okay. enmeshed within the white feminist movement. But I have to honestly say that I spent all of my years doing anti-rape work saying, I'm not a feminist, but <laughs> I'm not a feminist, okay. but uh, because, because I didn't did want to attach myself yeah. to what I saw as the stigma of the feminist movement, which what I called it. I was actually only reading the media reports. So I wasn't necessarily yeah. really sure. becoming knowledgeable about the movement. So I saw it as a man-hating movement. Uh -huh. I saw it as a separatist movement. I saw it as a movement that wasn't serious about taking on issues of race and class, right. which were very true. important to me. In a way, that was true. Um, yeah. And so it took 
about a decade for me to embrace the F word for myself yeah. and to really own it and realize that I had been part of crafting this movement that I was busily pushing away from myself. Yeah. I was pushing away the F word even as I was building yeah. part of the movement. And it was probably about 1980 that that button was produced because mm -hmm. I was still at the Rape Crisis Center at that time. And we had to have very difficult conversations about sexual assault in the African-American community. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we were even staging these conversations meant that a number of people, both male and female, in the black community mm -hmm. felt that we were betraying the race, that we were airing dirty laundry that we shouldn't be talking about, and that we are actually serving white supremacy by talking about intraracial rape. Mm -hmm. But my own analysis, and again, I always have to pay tribute to Nikiji Teray because of her yeah. clarity, and she used to say, a divided race cannot liberate itself. Mm -hmm. You know, if mm -hmm. men are brutalizing women, how in the world can we form a liberation movement? Yeah. Uh, we're already the divided and the conquered. Yeah. And then once I learned that 94% of rape is intraracial, meaning whites are ra raping whites, whites and blacks are mm -hmm. raping blacks and all of that. I began looking more closely at the intersection of gender and race and, and finding a particular voice that I needed to express mm -hmm. at that intersection. And so we had some of our first earlier forums at the DC Rape Crisis Center were about looking at that intersection. and, and But the black feminism button actually was produced by Kitchen Table Press, <laughs> to, 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 to give it its real antecedents. Okay. Barbara Smith and Beverly Smith and Barbara, and, and, and they had formed the Combahee River Collective huh. in 1977. And whenever you bought a book from Kitchen Table Press, yeah. they would give you a button wow. pinned through the book. <laughs> and crazy. so that black feminism book probably came pinned through one of the books I bought yeah. from Kitchen Table okay. Press, that That's Black River. And so... So tell us about how some of the ways that you were part of developing the, the discourse for the, the movement. Well, one of the really revolutionary things that happened at the D.C. Rape Crisis Center is that a group of perhaps four or five white women got together and decided that what was happening to women was absolutely outrageous. And mm -hmm. so they wanted to start a hotline that women could call to get help. Yeah. But they also made a really prophetic decision, and that was when they finally did secure funds to run the hotline, mm -hmm. they committed that they would only hire women from the community. Yeah. And so that meant that the first four directors of the D.C. Rape Crisis Center were all African-American women, mm -hmm. like me, coming from the community. And I was the third executive okay. director. Nikenji had been the second. And another woman named Michelle Hudson at the time, who went on to found My Sister's Place, a domestic violence oh, shelter, wow. she was the first. Okay. And so by them making the decision that they would hire black women from the community to staff the center, yeah. they created this hotbed of black feminism yeah. that was just incredibly rich. And I actually think books should be written by about those women. One of them lives up here in the Northampton area, hmm. Deb Freeman. 
I mean, she was a working class woman herself, working as a carpenter of yeah. all things. So she should be on your show and get interviewed as far I, as I'm, I'm concerned. Get her name and... <laughs> because yeah. she easily could have said, I need a job. Mm -hmm. I'll take these jobs. Mm -hmm. I won't move over and create space for women for the community. I see. And most places where rape crisis centers and domestic violence shelters were founded, right. they did not have that racial consciousness, sure. that sense of community politics that right. characterized the DC Rape Crisis Center. Yeah. And so that created the space for us to even get into what I call the golden age of black feminism in mm. Washington, because we not only had the Rape Crisis Center and the domestic violence shelter, my sister's place, but a woman named Linda Leakes moved to Washington at the time from Gainesville and started the first black women's newspaper that was called Upfront that she published for a number mm -hmm. of years. Another woman named Faye Williams started the first black feminist bookstore mm -hmm. in the country called Sister Space. And so yeah. at the late 70s and the 80s, we felt that we were on top of the world right. in terms of pioneering stuff around black feminism. And it was really a yeah. special time to be in Washington and to be part of the movement. And that's why I think we feel such ownership mm -hmm. of the women's movement. I actually wince when people call it the white women's movement because I feel mm -hmm. that it erases okay. all the contributions that those sure. of us who were not white sure. who helped craft this movement. I guess what, what I'm talking about was what my experience as a suburban Midwestern white girl growing up and what the media talked about too. Exactly. So they yeah. they were you know, busily yeah. you know patronizing so, and denigrating right. the movement, claiming we were all bra burners. Hell, I never burned a forty dollar bra in my life, <laughs> <laughs> you know, right, right, right. and that we hated men. I mean, we were all yeah. subjected to the yeah. media caricature of and the, the anti-oppressive work that we were doing. What I'm learning is that it wasn't two segregated things; that it was very much that you were all working together. Not always easily, but always mm -hmm. committed to ending all forms of oppression. And that doesn't mean yeah. that the women's movement itself didn't divide, yeah. because there were some that were far more focused on gender oppression, mm -hmm. some focused on the intersection of race and gender, mm -hmm. some focused more on the intersection of class and gender. Sure. And you know, then there was the whole quote, what Betty Friedan called the lavender menace, you know, the whole question of lesbian rights yeah. and, right. and, 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 and gender freedom within the movement. And so we did have our divisions, but to me, that's what made us a movement. Sure. Because a movement is when people think a lot of different ideas, but they move in the same direction. That's very cool. But when yeah. people only think one idea, right. and they move in the same direction, that's a cult. Oh, wow. <laughs> And we weren't the women's cult. No. We were the women's movement. movement. So we were supposed to have and really enjoyed and benefited from having this diversity of opinion and thought. I'm really concerned nowadays because there's a lot more thought police taking place yeah. in the women's movement yeah. than I think is really useful for mm. us right now. Mm -hmm. Where we're I call a phenomena, call it I call it identity bullies. Hmm. Where people are using their consciousness as a weapon against people who don't totally agree with them. Say more about that. Like, Well, I find that black women created this whole concept of identity politics. You saw it earlier in the statement with the Combahee River Collective. Okay. And then a decade later, Kimberly Crenshaw named something called intersectionality. 
And then a decade after that, I was part of a team that created reproductive justice. Right. And so we've offered specific gifts to discourse, to talking about mm -hmm. how you do social justice and social change. But at each stage, it's gotten appropriated and distorted in many kinds of ways that I'm not necessarily supportive mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. So identity politics is very important for you to understand who you are and find solidarity and support and even save space with people like you. Mm -hmm. But once you know who you are, mm -hmm. the question becomes, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. You know, because obviously the rest of the world is not predicated on you. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't sure. revolve around you. Yeah. And so then intersectionality mm -hmm. was about discovering all the yous mm. you are. Okay. You know, yeah. that you stand at that intersection of the race street, the gender street, the sexual freedom street, the, the age street, the ability street, mm -hmm. and all of that. Mm -hmm. And it's because you stand at that particular intersection that makes you uniquely you you're liable to oppression from any direction mm -hmm. and liberation from sure. any direction. Sure. And so you just can't say, I'm just going to work on gender or I'm just right. going to work on class or I'm just going to work on race when you are actually the sum total, you know, the, the, the integration of all of those sure. things in a calculus form. <laughs> sure. in, you're integrated. Sure. And then we created the concept of reproductive justice, yeah. which I'll probably talk about more later. Yeah to talk about bodily autonomy, the right to have a child, mm -hmm. the right not to have a child, and the right to parent our children in freedom and safety and, and in healthy environments. And so as we created these deepening concepts of mm -hmm. who we are, fighting the nihilism and, 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 and the individualism and the atomization of, of runaway capitalism, and, and, and even, you know, the philosophy of Anne Rand, I mean, oh my God. talk about her oh, for, a minute, yeah. for a minute, for a minute, very brief Scary. minute. What we're seeing is a number of people get stuck at those different stages, mm -hmm. get stuck at the I'm discovering who I am stage, yeah. or get stuck at I'm more oppressed because I have all these identities stage, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or I have the right to have kids no matter how I have to do it and no matter who I have to oppress stage, right. you know, and, and those are perversions, those are distortions of the gifts that black women have offered the social or mm -hmm. justice world. And so I call people who get stuck at those different stages identity bullies because okay. they tend to use their consciousness to try to figure out how the movement is going to serve them, not how they're going to wow. serve the movement. So not only are you aware and working with the people who are antagonistic to the movement, yeah. but you're also understanding and working with the people who are from within making the movement difficult. Or not difficult, but not helping it along. Well, Tony K. Bambara had a way of saying, you know, we have to make the revolution irresistible. <laughs> and yeah. I think if we cannot figure out how to make social sure. change fill people with joy and excitement and yeah. exhilaration, and we make people feel battered and beat down right. just because and they don't say the right words at right. the right time oh and my present the right <laughs> whatever, 
why would anybody want to work with such mirthless people like that? Right, right. right. I mean, it's just, it sucks all the energy out of the room. Yeah. It sucks all of the energy out of the movement to have that kind of bullying based on identity yeah. politics. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's our precious concepts run amok. This is getting into what I wanted to talk about in part two, which has to do a lot about race. Okay. Um, so I might be jumping the gun here. But what, I, what I'd love to hear about is in terms of your race work, and this is, I, what, what I'm hearing from you is that the bullying is, in a way, one of the things that I personally experience sometimes that I'm not, as a white ally or whatever, that I'm, I'm not doing it right. And one thing that I loved in your talk at Roe v. Wade was that I didn't feel blamed. I didn't feel beat up in that kind of way. I felt that there was an understanding of how whites mess up because they too are a product of all of this societal, institutional, racism and stuff. And uh, so, so you're coming at it from another direction, but I think that what you're getting at is what kind of appealed to me about your perspective and your way of being with, with me as an audience member back then. Well, I actually have to say that I've never thought of my job to soften a description of white supremacy for white people, because right. white supremacy but is an ideology, it's not a race of people. Yeah. It's not about a race of people. I mean, I right. know a, lot of, a number of black conservatives that subscribe to white supremacy as right. an ideology. So I never want to be an apologist for, for the ideology of white supremacy, yeah. but for me, I fundamentally believe in my heart that it's about building a human rights movement in which everybody's included. Mm -hmm. And so for us to include everybody in that human rights movement, we have to pay attention to those intersectional identities mm -hmm. so that we can meet the needs of those identities to make sure that that person with that identity is walking alongside of us. Right. I mean, the way I explain it when I do my human rights education classes is everyone has the same human rights. Right. No one has more human rights than anybody else. But a blind child might need her books in Braille. Mm -hmm. That's not special human rights. That's a special human need. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. as we discover our identities, we discover what our special human needs are. What I find that whites who are trying to participate in this human rights framework and struggle that I'm talking about are punished for even having these radical thoughts about white supremacy. Mm -hmm. I get supported and rewarded for talking about it, yeah. and you get kicked away from the Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> table <laughs> for talking about it. And right. so we have different points of entry yeah. into this conversation. Yeah. And so I try to pay particular attention to how the people that I consider my co-conspirators who are mm -hmm. white mm -hmm. need their needs paid, to, uh, paid attention to the same way I would pay attention to how my co-conspirators who are black and male mm -hmm. need their needs sure. paid attention to. Because obviously as a black female, I am less likely, though not totally likely, to be shot by a cop, yeah. you know, That's just right. for staring back at 
him right. or, right. you know, not reaching into my wallet fast enough or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And so, but I don't soften my analysis on right. white supremacy. I just try to be cognizant in a strategic way right. of what my people that I need to work with mm -hmm. need to understand and hear and have said in a way that keeps the listening opening. Because yeah. if you call people a bunch of names, guess exactly. what? They stop listening they to you down. real quick, quickly. They shut down. And yeah. so a young woman named Marissa, whose last name I cannot remember, but she works for Planned Parenthood. She's amazing. But she said, well, Loretta, you're building a movement about calling people in instead of calling people out. Yeah. I said, you know, I never had a way to name it until you That's said that. brilliant. Yeah. But that's, she, she gave me the phrase. And that's what I picked up on. I didn't feel that you were apologizing for anything horrible, like white supremacy, but I did feel that the door was open, that in a way that I could hear you and, and, and respond in a positive way. Right. And we all yeah. screw up. Sure. God, I, my problem is I have a 40-something year career in this movement, and, yeah. and some of my farts have been in the Washington Post. <laughs> <laughs> so I tend to be fairly That's tolerant really funny. That's really funny. other people's wow. screw-ups. I would love to hear an example. I'm not telling you right now. They've already put it in the Post. I don't have to re-resurrect exactly. that one. Exactly. That's great. All right, so we're just about getting to the end of this section. Um, it's just about a couple minutes, but I think what I'd like to do is encourage people to, to come on into part two with us, and uh, we'll continue with, with all the things that we're going to talk about. So uh, join us for part two, and uh, we'll see you then. Thanks.